following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. I want you to think about all the stories you've ever heard and all the novels, perhaps, or short stories you've ever read. What's your favorite one? What is your favorite story? I know we have some serious power readers in here of all ages. So, uh, But if, in case you don't read a whole lot, even think about your favorite movies or TV shows or just a story maybe somebody has told you in the past. And now think about the central conflict or problem that finds uh, resolution in that story, that, that, is, that finds some peace by the end of it. Now, I suspect, based on my very limited understanding of world literature and uh, even more limited understanding of movies, that what you might have in mind is probably one of two things, either a tale of redemption or a tale of revenge. A tale of redemption the, the resolution at the end could be described as a deliverance or even an escape where everything's happy at the end. That the problem is solved and they, they get out of whatever issue they're in, the characters. But a tale of revenge is a little different. That's where the hero, he gets payback. He gets his revenge. And then, you know, of course, with that, at least as the way it happens in stories, there's a ring of justice to it. Uh, the hero sets the world to rights, doesn't he? he? He gets back at whatever wrong has been perpetrated against him or his loved ones or perhaps his community. And you know, we love these stories, be they tales of redemption or tales of revenge. As Christians, I would even hazard a guess or hazard this statement, that tales of redemption, even in secular culture and literature, they remind us of our Savior and the redemption he wrought. And then tales of revenge, insofar as we find them entertaining, they may remind us of God's justice. Then indeed, he is perfectly just, and he does set the world to rights. Most underdog stories, even sports tales, are tales of redemption. And I can think of several Hollywood actors, I won't name them, but I can think of them, who have made entire careers, or second careers, out of revenge stories and movies. Well, one of, one, of, one of my favorite stories, perhaps my favorite novel that I've ever read, is Alexander Dumas's great story of revenge, in which the main character, Edmund Dantes, escapes an unjust prison sentence. He raises up a fortune for himself, and then he adopts the legendary persona of the Count of Monte Cristo and returns to his home incognito, in disguise, as this count to exact revenge against each of those people, his former friends, who treated him so wrongly. But here's another question for you. Are we to follow the same path as a character like Edmund Dantes, the Count of Monte Cristo? Are we to live out our lives in the pursuit of personal revenge and retribution against those who have wronged us? Are we to act out of self-interest and out of a sense of our rights, which have been taken from us or stolen away? Well, perhaps you think the answer is obvious. No. But our sinful human nature is bent toward, even perhaps twisted around, 
like rusted barbed wire around a post or something. It, it, it's bent toward this problem that's at the heart of every revenge story, and that is of self-promotion, self-interest, and self-even obsession, the obsession with one's own rights. Now, this problem, which is so central to the sinful human condition, this is what Christ is addressing in our verses this morning. This is what he addresses in the Sermon on the Mount today as he continues to systematically attack and then take down the teaching of the Pharisees and their scribes. What he shows us in this morning's text, in verses 38 through 42 today, is that true righteousness consists in self-denying generosity rather than selfish revenge. True righteousness consists in self-denying generosity rather than selfish revenge. And by his teaching and his deeds in his life, Christ shows us that this is true. And this is a lesson which we need frequent reminder of and, and of which we need uh, to really order our lives around and even examine our own motives. That true righteousness consists in self-denying generosity rather than selfish revenge. So we'll look at this under two headings, as I've been doing through these different antitheses, these different statements of Christ re rebutting the teaching of the Pharisees. The first heading today will be the unrighteousness of selfish revenge, how they've twisted the law in verse 38. And then the second heading will be the righteousness of self-denying generosity in verses 39 through 42, what Christ then teaches his disciples to do instead. So first, look at verse 38 with me. It's actually a citation of Old Testament scripture, but the allusion that Christ is making is to the Pharisees' teaching as he seeks to show the unrighteousness of selfish revenge. Verse 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now remember, he's talking about what they've heard the rabbis teach, what they've heard the Pharisees teach. He's not talking specifically or strictly about what is written in Scripture, even though the line that he gives is, in fact, a direct quotation from Scripture. He's talking rather about what they've heard as the interpretation of Scripture from those who have set themselves up as teachers. And this law of retribution, which has been perverted, is actually a law of, of great justice that God has given to his people for their good. In Exodus 21, 23, and 24, we read, but if there is any further injury that is in a dispute among two parties, then you shall appoint as a penalty life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Notice who's he, who he's addressing, though. You shall appoint as a penalty. The person with authority to do that. He's talking to judges. He's talking to the civil magistrate, as our confession puts it. He's not talking about personal individuals. Leviticus 24, 19 and 20 repeats a very similar statement. If a man injures his neighbor just as he has done, so it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Just as he has injured a man, so it shall be inflicted on him. And then Deuteronomy 19.21 perhaps hit on what, hits on what we really think of this particular law, this particular regulation governing the interactions between people in the body politic, in their society as the Old Testament church, the nation, the theocracy of Israel. Deuteronomy 19 says, Thus you shall not show pity 
Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Now, as our meditation this morning intimated or suggested, this whole um, law of retaliation, what in Latin is called the lex talionis, the law according to kind, it's rooted in an admission or acknowledgement of the dignity of men. We're all made in the image of God. And so if you offend another human being, it's as if you're attacking God. God makes that point after the Noahic flood, when he makes covenant with, um, with Noah and his sons. The one law that he gives is, if somebody sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. And then out of that then, multiple cultures, not just the Jewish people through Moses, but multiple nations adopt similar laws. We see it in the Code of Hammurabi for the ancient Mesopotamians. You see it in Greek law, ancient Greek law. In fact, in, in a large degree, our whole uh, British and then American legal system is built on this. When, when we think about sentencing, we're looking for something that's equitable, punishment that's equal to the crime, I think American Constitution has, has, a, uh, has a prohibition on cruel and unusual punishment. And that's an expression of this law that we're seeking to punish that, uh, punish certain transgressions, certain crimes according to the severity of those crimes and not to go beyond it. And that's really at the heart of the law of retribution or restitution in the Torah. In these different citations that I've given from Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, God is putting two restraints on his people. One, in each case, these passages are applied to the judges of the land, not to every single man or woman in the nation. This applies to the law courts specifically. Thus, God restrains our personal impulse to go after somebody who's wronged us. And he puts that role into what hopefully is an impartial judge. That's the first restraint. And the second restraint then is God gives strict limits. You know, to our ears, we hear life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And we might think, man, that sounds really rough. That sounds pretty brutal. But in fact, it's the tendency of us to get more out of somebody than anything they took from us. Think of the famous, if somewhat comical, blood feud in the hills of Appalachia, the Hatfields and the McCoys. Do you know what they were killing each other over, these two families out in the lawless mountains of West Virginia? I think at root, at the very beginning, one of, one, someone from one family stole a pig from someone from another family. And then it just spirals out of control. And that's human nature. We tend, we even see it in our own lives. We tend to seek for greater damages from somebody than anything that they did to us, don't we? So God restrains his people, and indeed he restrains us in that. He says, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, not life for eye or limb for tooth. You get what I'm saying? So what God has done in his Old Testament law then is give two restraints on the wickedness of the people. He permits them to exact justice, but only that which is equitable, which is, we could say, equal to the crime, not something that's cruel and unusual, again. But here's the problem. The Pharisees have taken this, and they've twisted it. 
just like they've done through every commandment we've looked at already. They've twisted this legal ordinance in two ways. In fact, in the two very ways that God institutes it to restrain his people from evil. First, they break the restraint on the, um, on the definition of who it is that's supposed to administer this law. They expand the scope in their teaching to make it almost a requirement or an expectation of each individual man to pursue his self-interest against the neighbor that's wronged him. It's no longer up to the judge or the police or the mayor or whoever to work justice in the land. Now the Pharisees taught, it's up to you. You need to go and exact penalties out of your neighbor. You need to pursue him to get back from him whatever it is he took away from you. You must have your revenge. That was the first way that these Pharisees have broken the restraint. And the second way that they did it is, I've already given a hint to it in just how I put that, they require the retribution. You see, much like the law of divorce and even the, the, the law about taking oaths in the Old Testament, you're never commanded to do those things. God never requires you to do those things. But he permits you to do them when it serves good in some way. You're permitted to do it. And here, the Pharisees who had said, you must pursue divorce, or you must take oaths in this way and according to our pattern, now say, you must pursue restitution. You must pursue revenge. You must, if you might put it this way, be a vigilante, even and especially when the civil magistrate isn't doing his job. Well, that's not the teaching of Christ. See, in verse 38, Christ brings up this problem of how the Pharisees have suppressed God's commandment for mercy in personal relationships. What we read about in Deuteronomy 15, what we see in Leviticus 19.18, where it said, You shall not take vengeance, speaking to persons like you and me, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. We'll look at that more next time I preach as well. The Pharisees have suppressed that teaching and instead have brought back from the grave, as it were, the dead man, the man who seeks for his own self-interest. They capitulate. They fall before their own sinful tendencies, and they encourage their listeners to do the same. They encourage you and me to do the same. Exercise your self-rights. Have your way. Jesus comes and he untwists this interpretation. He gets that barbed wire out from, from around the pole and he throws it away. He takes their twisted interpretation of God's law in which they're promoting the unrighteousness of selfish revenge and he puts in its place in verses 39 to 42 his true interpretation of the law as he promotes the righteousness of self-denying generosity. He takes the unrighteousness of selfish revenge and says, nope, that's not it. And he puts in its place the righteousness of self-denying generosity. Look where he begins in verse 39 with the principle of self-denying generosity. He says, but I myself say to you, remember, he's putting himself in place of the Pharisees who had twisted the teaching. He says, but I myself say to you, do not resist an evil person. 
So he gives this principle, and then in the rest of verse 39 through verse 42, he gives four examples of self-denying generosity. But the principle is the important thing here, the most important thing. We tend to get uh, tied up with the examples, and so we'll go through those in a moment. But I really want to set down this principle. First, we need to understand that uh, this translation, an evil person, it's literally the evil. But the New American Standard has done a done us a service here and how it's translated this as a person rather than as Satan or generic evil in the world. It really, Jesus is really talking about your neighbor who wrongs you, the person in your family who takes from you that which doesn't belong to him or her, you know, the person who's demanding something of you. That's really what Jesus is talking about, and our translation renders this well. We're talking about the person who commits evil against you. And Jesus' principle here is not an encouragement then to just let that evil person do whatever he wants. He's not like Tolstoy did and then Gandhi picked up later, uh, advancing a doormat pacifism religion. Rather, he's renunciating the seeking of revenge that the Pharisees required of their disciples. And this... What Christ is doing here in in pushing out the tendency of revenge, to do evil to others, thinking two wrongs somehow make a right, what Jesus is doing here is an essential feature of Christianity. J.C. Ryle, I I don't have the quote in front of me, but he's the one who says that, that this principle in Christ's teaching, when it's followed by Christ's people, makes our profession of faith beautiful because it reflects the Father's divine love for sinners. God had every right to crush us under the weight, the absolute weight of his justice and to cast us into eternal hell. And yet what does he do? He has mercy on us. He loves us and so sends his son to take the penalty upon himself then that we might live and not perish. And so there's a reflection of that father's love when a Christian, as a disciple of Christ, then has mercy on others and seeks not for revenge in his personal relationships, but rather seeks for love and mercy and kindness. Okay, does that mean that it's always inappropriate then to enter into a lawsuit? Does that mean that it's always inappropriate to defend our rights? Is it then inappropriate to pursue for a just society and and whatever that means? No, it's not inappropriate to do those things. At times you'll be called upon and you'll be in a position to do those things. As American citizens, we all have the right to vote. And I think that you ought to be exercising that right for the advancement of good and God's glory in our nation. Not saying to be a pacifist and things political. This doesn't mean you can't be a cop or you can't go into the military. Certainly you can serve in those ways when called upon to do so. But what Christ is saying is in your personal relationships, pursue peace with others. Don't pursue your self-interest, but rather pursue the good, the true, the beautiful, And he gives four examples of this self-denying generosity then in verses 39 through 42. And they're all very familiar to us. In fact, we've adopted them as common expressions in our language. You see them all over literature and even in political discourse and how people talk to each other. 
in the first place. Whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Turn the other cheek. In the second place, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. In the third place, whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Go the second mile is the phrase we've adopted. And then the fourth place, give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Each of these four examples that Christ gives, they're somewhat hyperbolic. He's making his point from the radical principle he's just given to his disciples to resist self-interest and revenge and to adopt instead self-denying generosity. And so in each of these four points, he draws from Jewish life of his day, a very different context than that in which we live today, but he also is making some particular points that would have clicked immediately for his hearers. Namely, he says, basically, do double good for the evil that you receive. If someone asks you to go one mile, you go two. If someone asks for your shirt, your undergarment, give him your outer garment as well. That's something that was particularly um, uh, important in ancient Israel before indoor heating and cooling. What you would sleep in sometimes, it was your blanket, keep you warm at night. And then, probably the most famous, someone slaps you on your right cheek, is what the Greek says, and turn to him your other as well. Allow him to insult you twice rather than seek your good. Allow him to take your cloak before you pursue your own interest. If the Roman soldier says, carry my load for a mile, well, he can't tell you to go to, but you should take control of the situation and do it yourself. You see, what Christ is giving here in his proverbial wisdom is not a weak, doormat Christianity, as I said, but rather it's a very strong, even assertive, self-denying do-gooding that Christ is promoting to his disciples. If someone strikes you and shames you and insults you, rather let them do it again. By doing good, you'll heap burning coals upon their head, as Proverbs says, and then, uh, and then Paul picks up in Romans 12. If someone sues you for some material goods, well, wouldn't it be better to just give him even more rather than to have to go to court? That's the point Christ is making. And then if you're oppressed by foreign uh, oppressors, if you're conscripted into service against your will, well, then take it upon yourself to do an even greater service to he who conscripted you because you're serving the Lord in whatever service you have. And then finally, the one that kind of sticks out to us among these four is that last one, because it's a little bit different. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. This is the one example where the person's not necessarily evil, but the person is indeed in need. And that's where Christ kind of brings back or fleshes out the big principle he's giving. Do not resist an evil person in those three examples. And then the last one, do good. Deny yourself in your generosity as well as in your suffering wrong. You respond to wrong in denying yourself and even submitting yourself to suffering rather than demanding from others perhaps that which you think or you do actually deserve. Now, the best exegesis 
of the pattern of life that Christ describes here, the best way to understand it is really to look at his pattern of life. That which is foretold in the Old Testament and that which he actually lived, that we have recorded for us in the Gospels. In Isaiah chapter 50, we read about Christ to come. The Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my heart to listen as a disciple. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. I gave my back to those who strike me, and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting, for the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I am not disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. He who vindicates me or avenges me is near. Who will contend with me? Let him draw near to me. Who is he who condemns me? Behold, they will all wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them. Is that a picture of weak push over humiliation? No. That's a picture of God's goodness and glory to us in his suffering servant. We see it again later on in Christ's life. He who said, turn the other cheek to his disciples had, in Matthew 26, 67, spit into his face, beatings with fists, and even slaps, probably, in fact, certainly, upon his cheek. Matthew 27, 35, he who said to give up your cloak when they take your shirt or your undergarment even has the same happen to him. When they had crucified him, they, the soldiers, divided up his garments. It's the same Greek word for cloak among themselves by casting lots. Jesus lives out that which he teaches his disciples. But in his life, he, he certainly lived a life of humiliation. Our salvation depends upon it. But he lived a life in service to God, a life of truth and justice. In John 18, we're given of, uh, more of the picture of Christ's humiliation in his trial and then eventual crucifixion and death. The high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. And Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the, in the temple where all the Jews come together and I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. And when he had said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus, saying, Is that the way you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, If I have spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? Jesus defends himself, but not out of self-interest. He defends himself here in this context in the interest of justice and truth, so shall it be said of all his true disciples. Whenever we make defense and resistance to wrongdoing in whatever context, in our personal relationships or in other contexts, may we do so in the cause of truth and not in the cause of self-interest. It takes a great deal of wisdom to distinguish the two, doesn't it? We can get wrapped up into thinking our cause is always a true cause rather than thinking that the true cause ought always to be our cause. See what direction this needs to go in. Paul himself uh, imitates his Savior in Acts 16.37 when he says to those who are before him, they have beaten us in public without trial, men who are Romans. 
and have thrown us into prison, and now are they sending us away secretly? No, indeed, but let them come themselves and bring us out, as he says to the jailer. Again, defending the cause of truth, not the cause of his own self-interest. And Peter puts this well about our Lord. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. That is his father. He lived for justice. He lived for righteousness, but he did not live for himself. And indeed, that's the pattern he impresses upon his disciples. Not to live a life of retaliation and revenge and retribution, but a life of self-denying generosity. A life that can say with Moses in Deuteronomy 15, if there is a poor man with you, one of your brothers in any of your towns in your land, which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart nor close your hand from your poor brother, but you shall freely open your hand to him and shall generously lend him sufficient for his need and whatever he lacks. For has not God dealt with you so generously as well? And who can sing with the psalmist in 112, verses 5 and 9, It is well with the man who is gracious and lends. He will maintain his cause and judgment. He is given freely to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be exalted in honor. Our Lord descended from the glories of heaven, setting them aside, even despising those glories, we can say, and took to himself a human nature to live and to die for us, that we might know his grace and his mercy. He was utterly self-denying, utterly selfless. And he hung a, upon the cross and died a wretched death, despised of his fellow men, even his countrymen, his brothers according to the flesh. And why? Because he's generous with us. He lavishes grace upon grace upon us. Children, have you received this salvation from the Lord, or do you yet cling to your own self-interest, your own self-righteousness, working justice for yourself, or do you cast yourself upon the Lord Jesus as he's freely offered to you in the gospel? I implore you this morning, I plead with you as an ambassador of Christ, look to this generous one, this perfect one. Look to Jesus, not only as Lord, but as Savior, and trust in him for salvation, even this morning. At the end of the Count of Monte Cristo, Edmond Dantes, our hero in the book, he doesn't give up his invented identity as the Count from what we can tell, but something has changed in his understanding of revenge. He had conceived of himself as something of the instrument of the Lord's vengeance upon those who had done ill to him. And he's kind of, he's thinking about that as he's completed his mission, and he has a moment of repose before the end of the book, his enemies, are, they're all gone. But he comments on his experience with these words, and this is how the book ends. Until the day when God will deign to reveal the future to man, all human wisdom is contained in these two words, wait and hope. In other words, perhaps we can say, vengeance belongs to God alone. It's not right for man to take it into his own hands. God is perfectly just, and justice will indeed be served. But we are men. And in our personal dealings with one another and with our neighbors, we are to exercise love, not vengeance. We're not avengers. God alone is the avenger. And he appoints magistrates 
for justice in the land, as we read in Romans 13 and elsewhere. But even there, we know how fraught with difficulty that process is. So we shouldn't be quick to rush in, to become judges ourselves. There are times when we should raise our voices to demand justice in society. I think of the pro-life movement in particular as one very good example of that. There are times when we need to raise our voices in the church, when we see injustice and abuse running rampant. There are times in our families when we should confront each other and say, why would you do such a thing to your brother, your sister, your husband, your wife, your children, or your parents? There are times when we must restrain the wickedness that spills out of our sinful hearts, our selfish hearts, and to hold back, then, the destructiveness of sin. I'm not advocating for antinomianism or push-over religion. But at the heart of all that we do must not be the interest in self, because then we'll poison everything we touch, but rather the interest of the good of others. We must never advance our personal interests and rights at the expense of others. We're so quick to do that. To say, that's mine. I was here first. Get out of my way. Stop speaking to me. Whatever the case may be. No. We must forsake all of those manners. All of those ways of interacting with one another. We need to recognize it's too easy. Way too easy. To confuse the pursuit of vengeance with the pursuit of justice to confuse personal rights and retribution with appropriate restitution according to God's will revealed to us in his scriptures. And perhaps we can do no better than to end with the words of Romans 12, 17 through 21, where Paul, following his Lord, says to the church in Rome, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That's taken from Proverbs. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.